listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, this is the second service uh, so far today. We, uh, for the first time, uh, had our 8.30 service on a non-Easter weekend, and we had a great time in that service. You can think of that as dress rehearsal for the real service, right, uh, for 10 o'clock. Um, if you tell them I said that, I'll deny it, all right? Uh, so Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Ethan. I get the great privilege of uh, serving as the pastor here at Central, uh, and I hope, like Casey said, you have felt loved uh, here at Central. That is our goal, um, and we want you to feel loved by us uh, because we have been loved by our good God, um, and we want you to know his love, and so that's my hope and my prayer uh, for you and for us uh, today, that we would feel that, we would know that, we would be reminded of that. Last week, we got to gather uh, here as we do every Sunday and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We got to celebrate that Jesus is alive. Uh, and uh, hopefully you were here with us last week or you got to worship somewhere and celebrate that Jesus is alive. That's what we do here at Central every Sunday. Every Sunday, we are here celebrating uh, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is risen from the grave. But the Sunday after Easter sometimes can feel a little anticlimactic, can't it? All right, uh, we're not waking up looking forward to the meal that is to come the, uh, on Saturday night. We didn't get out our new Easter shirt or Easter dress or Easter tie or uh, whatever it may be. Uh, we're back kind of into the mundane, into the regular, into the routine. And I don't think that routine or regular is bad. In fact, I think oftentimes God does his best work in the ordinary means of grace and in the ordinary things of life. But last week we celebrated that Jesus is alive. And so now the question that we ask today is now what? Right now, what do we do? Now, what does this mean for us? And so uh, over the next several weeks, we're going to kind of do a survey. We're going to fly through the book of Ephesians. And we're going to look at what does it mean that we have been brought back to life? What does it mean that the resurrection changes everything? And so we're going to start uh, today. We're going to start this week here in Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And as we do, we're going to see this truth, that life with Jesus changes everything. Life with Jesus changes everything. That our lives as believers, if those who have encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ should look different, should feel different, should smell different, should taste different than they were before we encountered Jesus. Before Jesus changed everything. And so uh, this morning, we're going to see this truth that life with Jesus changes everything. So let me invite you to look with me here here at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 7. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word? Here in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we read this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for... Jesus. God, thank you that Jesus is alive. And we get to come here today, not just celebrating that Jesus was alive last week, but celebrating that Jesus still is alive today. And so Father, I pray this morning and over the next few weeks that you would show us what this means for us, how this really does, this life with Jesus really does change everything. So Father, I pray that you would speak to us now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, here in Ephesians 2, Paul is telling us that a life with Jesus changes everything. And in these verses that we've just read, he, he gives us two pictures of our life, one before Christ and one after we have come to know and after we have come to meet Christ. And so first, he shows us this, that life without Jesus is marked by guilt. Life without Jesus is marked by guilt. Now, persistent guilt is no way to live. We were not created, we were not made to live under the weight of persistent guilt. That's not the way of the gospel. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way that the Lord would have us walk. But apart from Jesus, that's exactly how we do walk. We walk in a life marked by guilt. Now, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians, and one of the things that we talked about in 1 Corinthians is that the church of Corinth is a picture of everything that you do not want in a church. Uh, the church of Corinth is a picture of division and disunity and problems. In Ephesians, we have just the opposite. If you were going to be a member of one of the churches that Paul wrote a letter to, you want to be a member of the church at Ephesus, the, the church of Ephesians. You, you certainly don't want to be a member of the church at Corinth or the church at Galatia, but the church at Ephesus, it was the church, this was the strong church, the healthy church. It was pastored by Paul's young disciple, his young protege, Timothy. In fact, when scholars, when they look at this book, they struggle to know why Paul was writing other than to remind the Ephesians of the good news of the gospel, which we know is a reason in and of itself worth writing. In fact, this this letter to the Ephesians, it, it gained so much popularity that we know that pretty quickly after it made its way to Ephesus, they started passing it around to other churches. It started making the circuit because they wanted other churches to know what Paul had said, what Paul had shared with them, how Paul had encouraged them. It's full of good news. And so we come to Ephesians 2 today. And one of the important things to note about these 11 verses, and especially the first seven that we read here, is the first 11 verses in the original language are one long run-on sentence. 
Um, so uh, had Paul turned this in uh, to my daughter's third grade teacher, uh, he would have had some red marks on it, right? Because it is a long sentence. And in fact, uh, I was reminded of this as, uh, as we were reading it together in the first service. We kept jumping into the middle of thoughts and the middle of sentences. And so uh, we want to read this passage carefully. But this passage is chock full of important glorious truths that you and I need as we seek to live lives that honor Jesus and as we seek to be reminded that life with Jesus really does change everything. And not only does life with Jesus change everything, but life with Jesus is better than anything. So here, look with me at verse one of Ephesians two. Paul starts off with some, some pretty bad news. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. See, what he's gonna do in these first three verses is he's gonna, he wants to paint this picture to show us how bad the bad news is before we can see how great the good news is. He, he wants us to see just really how bad, how bleak, how dark our situation is apart from Christ so that we can see how good our situation, how good our lives are with Jesus. Now notice he, he's speaking here to believers. He's speaking to those who have already trusted Christ. And so he speaks in the past tense. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now these, uh, this death, this is a spiritual death, and this spiritual death is seen in trespasses and sins. Those two words are really talking about the same thing, and they, they mean this, they're offenses against God that depart from his standard. So that's what sin is. Sin is an offense from, uh, against God that misses his mark and his standard. Sometimes we want to be the ones that set the standard, don't we? Right? We want to be the ones that determine how good you have to be. Right? That, hey, I might have sinned. I might have messed up. But let me tell you about my sister. Right? She's the sinner. Right? I know that I've sinned, but I got a cousin. You wouldn't believe what he did. Right? Some of us, maybe you think, hey, if, I, if I'm just good enough, then God's going to let me into heaven. If I'm just good enough, then everything's going to be okay. The question is, who gets to decide what is really good enough? Who gets to decide who has been good enough? Do you get to decide what is good enough? Does someone else get to decide what is good enough? See, what we see in this passage is that, and we see this throughout the scriptures, is that God has a standard. And it is a standard that we have all failed to meet. In fact, it is a standard that you and I cannot meet. Now, this situation, it wasn't unique to the Ephesians. It wasn't that the Ephesians were dead in their trespasses and sins. No, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, apart from Christ, that is our reality. You may be here today and you may have yet to trust Christ. That is your reality. Now, Paul says you were dead. He's not saying that you were sick. He doesn't say that you needed help. No, he says that you were, I was, we were dead, helpless and lost. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a dead man do anything. They're dead, right? It's not that they just need a little push. Paul doesn't say, hey, you just need some medicine, right? You just need a shot. He doesn't say, hey, you're drowning and you need a life raft. No, he says you were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
In verses two and three, he shows us well, what does this spiritual death look like? Look, look at verse two. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He shows us here, what does it look like for dead men to walk? He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. See, we all walk in something. We all have a way that we live our life. We all have governing principles that guide and direct our life. We all have a reason for why we live the way that we live. Some might call it a worldview. Right? We all have a way that we view the world. We all have a way that is right and that is wrong. The question is, is our worldview a worldview that we have made and that we have established and that we have come up with? Or is our worldview God's view? Right? Is our worldview, do we see the world? Do we live the way that God would have us to live? What Paul says here is that if we're not walking with Jesus, then we're walking in trespasses and sins. He makes the severity of this darkness clear and he, he makes it clear in a way that, that is a little uncomfortable for us to deal with. He says here in verse two, he says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This prince of the power of the air, this is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He, he says that if, apart from Christ, that you, we follow the course of the world. We follow the prince of the power of the air. Now, who is this prince of the power of the air? This is kind of a strange title, a strange way to think about it, but this gives it this idea of, of the one who, who controls the spiritual world on earth as it is today. Now, this, this prince, this is Satan himself. See, one of the, one of the themes that you'll see as you read through the book of Ephesians is that Paul does not shy away from recognizing and admitting and showing and teaching us the reality of spiritual warfare. That there is a spiritual war waging for your soul, waging for your life even now. And he, he says here, he says, look, if you aren't following Jesus, then you're following Satan. That's a difficult pill to swallow, isn't it? Because I think even for my lost friends, what they would say is, hey, I might not follow Jesus, but I don't follow Satan, right? I'm kind of in this middle ground, but what Paul says, there, there is no middle ground. You either follow Jesus or you don't, right? You either follow Jesus or you follow the prince of the power of the air. You either follow the one who created the air or you follow the one who thinks he's in control of the air right? You follow Jesus or you follow Satan. And apart from Jesus, it's who we're following. Now, the end of verse two, he, he gives this identifier. Look here. He says, this is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When I, I read this passage this week, the first thing I thought is I've got a new nickname for my boys, right? The sons of disobedience. Um, they, uh, they get it from their, from their father. I mean, from their... Um, <laughs> From the, she's not here, I can say that. Uh, she's coming to the next service. Um, so he says, anyone 
Anyone who, who isn't walking with Jesus is a son of disobedience, a daughter of disobedience. See, unbelief is always accompanied by disobedience. Right? And disobedience is always a picture of unbelief. This is even true for the believer, right? The reason that we sin is because in that moment, we are failing to believe something that is true about God, right? Whenever we sin, we're saying that this sin is gonna make me happier than God can, right? That this thing is gonna bring me more joy than Jesus does. And so he says here that anyone not walking with Jesus is walking in disobedience. In other words, that they are rebels against God's authority. Now, I've always thought that the idea of rebellion was interesting, I've always thought the idea of rebels were interesting. When Anna and I uh, were first dating, I used to tell her, I'm a rebel, right? I'm dangerous. And she was like, boy, you're in Bible college. How dangerous can you be, right? <laughs> like, uh, it, it doesn't work that way. But what I've always thought was interesting about rebels and rebellion is rebels are people who, who claim to not fit a mold. They're people who are going to do their own thing. But what's interesting about rebels is they're people who are going to do their own thing, but they always end up doing their own thing with people who are doing the exact same thing as they are, right? right? They're rebelling together. And if you're rebelling with a group, at some point, you're just going with the flow, right? At some point, you are no longer rebelling. And so today... There are sins that are seen as rebellious and even heroic. What is seen as oppressive is righteousness. What is seen as oppressive is Jesus. But what happens here in Ephesians 2 is Paul flips it. He says it's not rebellious to sin. That's what everyone does. Everyone sins. Real rebellion is following Jesus. Right? It's not rebellious to press into your sin and to feed your flesh. It's rebellious to go to church on Sunday morning. It's rebellious to read your Bible. It's rebellious to pray. Husbands, you want to be a rebel? Love your wives and your kids the way Jesus loved the church. Right? Wives, you, you want to be rebellious? Love your, your husband and your children the way God has commanded us. Kids, you, you, you want to be rebellious, teenagers? You want to be rebellious? Then run hard after Jesus and forget what everyone else says. That's true rebellion. That's real rebellion. The, those are the rebels that I'm praying for. Right? That, that, those are the kind of rebels that we need. Now in verse three, Paul says it, it's easy to keep walking as dead because we, we start to believe some things. We start to do some things, right? So verse three, he He's building this case that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were sons of disobedience. And look at verse three. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, it's really easy to keep walking as dead because it feels so natural. It feels so right. He talks about these desires and the passions of the flesh and the mind. See, the flesh in the New Testament, the way Paul uses it, is everything in us that wants us to sin and wants us to keep sinning. He, he, he talks here about, he says, we were by nature 
children of wrath. He, he talks about this flesh and these desires of the body and the mind. See, here's what we need to know that natural desires aren't necessarily healthy, right? So they're, maybe, maybe you'll say, maybe you've heard this said before, right? Well, well, this is the way the Lord made me or this is the way the Lord has built me or, or I was born this way or whatever it may be. But because that is what you are naturally inclined to do doesn't mean that it is right for you or good for you. Really what it means is that it could kill you. Let me give you an example of this. Yesterday, we, uh, my family went to a college baseball game. Um, and I don't know about you, but whenever I walk into a baseball stadium, the hot dogs beckon unto me, right? Uh, the, the nachos, the pretzels, the, the cheeseburgers. The, uh, I saw one guy, we sat down before we made it to the concession stand and he was eating something. I don't even know what it was, but like, I want it right? Uh, I want that. And so uh, we, we went and uh, my family of, uh, of six, we went and I placed my order at the concession stand and the, the girl behind the, the cash register, she said, well, sir, congratulations. This is the highest total that I have ever seen. Um, and I said, well, do I get like a sticker? Do I get something free? And she said, you can have your hot dogs you paid for. Um, and I said, well, thank you. Thank you very much. But see, I, I walk in and, and, and man, I want to eat that hot dog. I want to eat that cheeseburger. And I want to keep eating them, right? Because they're there, right? Let, let's keep eating them. And then and let's say that the next day I go back and I just keep eating hot dogs and cheeseburgers because they're good, right? And then the next day, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go eat this or that thing. I've got a friend, he says that when he eats McDonald's and he feels bad afterwards, that's how he knows it's working, right? That, that, that's what it's supposed to do, right? And, and so we, I could eat all this junk and it might taste good in the moment. It's going to make me feel bad afterwards. And ultimately, if I keep doing long enough, it's going to kill me but it's a natural desire. It's a natural desire that I wanna keep eating these things because they taste good. I wanna keep eating these things because they feel good in the moment, but they leave me with guilt and shame afterwards. And if I keep doing it enough, it's gonna kill me. See, because we have a natural desire to do something doesn't mean that it's right, righteous, or holy. See, what, what David says in Psalm 51 is that we are all born sinners that we, we are sinners, not because we sin, but we sin because that's what our nature is. Our, our nature is that we would sin, that, that sin has corrupted every fiber of our being. That, that we, we are born as sinners, and then we enjoy our sin. And what Paul says here in Ephesians 2 is that because of that nature, he says that we are, and he says this in a way that just grabs your attention, children of wrath that we have earned we have deserved God's judgment because of what felt natural because of what feels good and be because of what feels right see it might feel natural but it feels natural because something has gone wrong it feels natural because we were born sinners our nature is that we are children of wrath. Our, our sin, it leads us to sin and it leads us to earn judgment. See, what Paul is saying here in these verses is that the way of the world, following the course of the world, the, the prince of the power of the air, that, that that is no way to live at all. It promises joy, but it gives guilt and shame. Right, that, that hot dog at the, the ballpark it promised me joy, and while I was eating it, it felt good, but when it was over, I didn't feel great, right? When it was over, I felt the weight. Sin 
promises you that it will feel good and it might feel good in the moment. In fact, sin typically does feel good in the moment. If sin didn't feel good, we wouldn't do it. But oftentimes sin feels good in the moment and then it leaves us with guilt and shame, right? It it leaves us feeling the weight of what has happened. See, if the way of the world gave joy, then we wouldn't be looking for ways to numb ourselves. We wouldn't be looking for ways to remove ourselves from this world. And Neil Postman, he wrote a book uh, several decades ago called Amusing Ourselves to Death. That we, we have always been looking for a way to numb ourselves to what is happening. It, it was true in Paul's day, it was true in Neil Postman's day, and it's true in our day as well. I read this statistic this, way, this week. 21% of the American population, 12 and over, so understand, 12 and over, 21%, almost a quarter, have used drugs in the last 30 days. We use drugs because we're trying to escape something. We, we use drugs because we're trying to, to numb something. Or, or that drug abuse, it begins because we're trying to numb something, and then it becomes something that instead we run to just when things hurt, but we run to because we need it. Maybe that's not you. But I also read this, that the average American adult watches two and a half hours of television every day. We watch two and a half hours of television every day because we're looking for an escape because the world isn't really all it's cracked up to be, is it? That the world can't deliver what it promises. And so we look for ways to numb ourselves. We look for ways to remove ourselves. Maybe... Maybe you recognize you do this, maybe you don't. Have you ever come home from work and as you're driving home from work, you think, man, I just need to zone out for a few minutes. I just need to to tune out for a few minutes. I need no one to talk to me. I need to just let my mind wander, whatever it may be. See, in that moment, you are experiencing that the world isn't all that it's cracked up to be. That the world can't give you what it promises. It promises you joy in life and instead it gives you guilt and shame. It it, it gives you, it makes a promise over here, but it's a bait and switch, right? That's what sin does. Sin always promises what it can't deliver and it costs you more than you expect. See, life without Jesus is marked by guilt, but there's good news. Life with Jesus is marked by grace. Life with Jesus is marked by grace. See, life with Jesus is always better than the alternative. Life with Jesus is always better than life without Jesus. I can tell you that not just based on the authority of God's word, even though that would be enough. I can tell you that based on my own experience. That life with Jesus is infinitely better than life without Jesus. Here in verse four, we have sweet and wonderful truths about God for those like us who should fear him. Look at verse four. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. We can stop right there. Remember, Paul has just said that we were children of wrath, right? That we were sons of disobedience. We deserved God's wrath, but God has given us something better. Why has he given us something better? Why has he saved us? Because of who he is. Not not because of what we've done, right? If it was based on what we've done, then that would have earned judgment. But instead, it's based on who Jesus is and, and what he has done. He is, first, he's rich in mercy. 
And then because of the great love with which he loved us. Understand this. God saves us because of who he is. Uh, Understand this, that, that God sees your sin. He sees your shame. He sees your guilt. And he loves you anyway. Right, that, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the promise and the hope that we have, is that we can be fully known, which means God knows all of our sins. But in Jesus Christ, we can be fully loved and fully accepted. And we're accepted not because God cast a blind eye to our sin or accepted because God put Jesus to death for our sin. So what covers our guilt, what covers our shame, what covers our sin isn't us trying to hide it from our God. Instead, what covers our guilt and shame is the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross in our place. See here in verse four, he tells us that, that God is rich in mercy. He's plentifully supplied in kindness and concern for those who do not deserve it. That's what mercy is. Mercy is getting what we do not deserve. That's what God does. That's what he is rich in. We deserve judgment. And instead he gives us grace. We deserve wrath. And instead he gives us reward. Now in verse five, we need to understand how great this love and mercy are. In verse five, he starts it by saying, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that God loved us with this great love that he was rich in mercy, even when we were at our lowest. Verse one, Paul, he, he makes a switch here. In verse one, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In verse five, he says, we were dead in our trespasses. He, he now identifies, right? He, he starts by being the prophet by saying, you were dead. And now he's shifted and he says, look, there's no pride in me. There's no pride in this. We were dead. I was dead as well. Even then, what has God done? He says he has made us alive together with Christ. Now, here's what's interesting about this phrase, made us alive together. Uh, This is a phrase that as far as we can tell, Paul created. But Paul wasn't the only one to use this phrase. In fact, outside of the New Testament, this phrase is used several times. But here's the thing. This phrase is only ever used in Christian writing. It's never used in the Greek philosophers. It's never used in any other writing. And what that tells us is this, is that this is the unique experience of Christianity that no other religion and no other philosophy can offer. That it is only Jesus that can make us alive with him. It's only Jesus that can, that can make us alive the way that he has done here. And this is what theologians call regeneration. Regeneration is the, the Holy Spirit granting us life by giving us faith and raising us from the dead and making us new creations who follow Jesus. And, and why does he do this? All of grace. What does the end of verse five say? By grace, you have been saved. That's the best phrase in the Bible. By grace, you have been saved. He doesn't say by your works, you have been saved or by your behavior, you have been saved. He says by grace, you have been saved. Grace is, is, mercy is us not getting what we deserve. Grace is us getting what we don't deserve. The way you can think about grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. 
that grace, you're not given grace because you've been great. I'm, I'm not given grace because of what I've done. I'm given grace because that's what God does. God gives grace. And here's the thing, friends, this is the greatest need of every person in this room. The greatest need of every person in this room is God's grace. Because we were by nature children of wrath, we were sons of disobedience, we have earned, we have deserved God's judgment, and yet today, even now, knowing what we said and thought about and did yesterday, God gives us grace today. Knowing what we said and thought about and did this morning, what does God give us? He doesn't give us what we deserve, he gives us grace. Instead, he gives Jesus what we deserve. We deserve punishment, we deserve the cross. Instead, he tells Jesus, his sinless son, you go to the cross and save them. Right, you go to the cross and you, you save my people. It's grace that saves us and it's grace that makes us alive and, and raises us. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God has made us alive together with Christ and by grace you have been saved. Verse six, he says, and he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So grace saves us, grace makes us alive and then what does grace do? It raises us. See, the answer to our spiritual death, the answer to your spiritual death is not more work and better behavior. The answer is Jesus. And because Easter is true, because Jesus was raised, then what this means is you and I will be raised as well. See, this is why we make such a big deal about baptism here at Central. We make a big deal about baptism here at Central because baptism is a picture of this regeneration. It's a picture of what God has done for us, that we have been buried together with Christ in our sin, but we have been raised with new life. So this is a picture, it's the covenant sign that we have been buried and we have been raised. And so the mark, the sign of God's people is that we have experienced baptism and we're baptized, we're baptized for two reasons. First reason is as a reminder to ourselves, right? It's a, we're baptized as a reminder to ourselves that I have been buried with Christ and I've been raised with him. But then we're baptized for another reason, we're baptized for ourselves, but then we're baptized for others as well. We're baptized for others first so that as we see baptisms, as we, and we celebrate baptisms, right? We don't just see baptism. We, we don't just watch baptisms. We participate in baptisms as we celebrate because we're celebrating what God has done in the life of that person. And it's a reminder to us of what God has done in us, right? It's a reminder to us what God has done for us. But then as we celebrate baptism, it's also a picture to those who are watching of what God can do for them. That they can be raised with Christ. And so if, you, if you've yet to take that next step, that first step of obedience in baptism following Jesus, man, we wanna help you do that. We, we wanna be able to celebrate that with you. We wanna invite you to do that even now. So here in verse six, he, he says he's raised us up with him but the next he says this, he's seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul is so sure of this that he speaks of it in past tense, right? He speaks of it as having already happened. And in one sense it has, 
This is what, when we read the New Testament, what we call the already and the not yet, right? This is the already not yet aspects of our salvation. We have already been saved, and yet we have not yet fully experienced all that our salvation will bring, right? That we, we see through a mirror dimly, but soon we will see fully. Right now, uh, we see by faith. Soon we will see by sight. You can think about it uh, like this. Every four years, we elect a new president. And when that president is elected, if he's not the incumbent, if he's not already in office, then he is the president-elect. Now, once he becomes the president-elect, it is well understood that that is the president, right? That is the incoming president, that, that he might not be sitting in the Oval Office right now, but that office is his, right? That he is decorating it, he is preparing it. He might not sleep in the White House, but he will soon. Now, at his inauguration, he will fully enjoy all that his election brings. See, as Christians, our future is secured, but we wait for the day when our faith will be sight. We are already seated with Jesus in the heavenly places, and soon, sooner than we think, we will be seated next to Jesus, and we will see him, right? We will see him face to face. So why does God do this? Why, why would God save us? Why would Jesus die for sinners like me? Look at verse seven. It says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, so that is a response phrase. It's an action response. So there's been an action. Now, what's the response or what's the result? Why has it happened? God has saved us so that the world will know of his great grace and kindness. See, that's what our salvation is a display of God's grace. It's a display of God's grace to ourselves, but then it's also a display of God's grace to the world that needs it. It's a, it's a display of God's grace to those who need to experience God's grace. F.F. Bruce, he, he was a New Testament scholar of a passion generation. He said this, he said, the church is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. So what this means is that God is an artist creating a great work, and that great work is the church which he has saved. I mean, what, what more could we need than that? What more could we ask for? That God has saved us because God is good and because he loved us. I mean, Christian, know this, that God didn't save you because he had to. God saved you because he wanted to, right? God saved you because he, because he loves you. See, when we get this, we understand that, that life with Jesus changes everything. See, all that the world can offer is a life marked by shame because you can never measure up. You can never be good enough. Uh, I learned a phrase several years ago, mom guilt, right? And, and it, it's happened, or it's become more prevalent with social media that, that moms look on social media and they see, man, this mom is taking their kids to story time. This mom's taking their kids to music time. This mom's doing healthy snacks. I can barely get my kid out of bed and get him a happy meal, right? And, and you, you feel the guilt, right? You feel the shame. I'm not as good of a mom as I could have been. We laugh, but some moms understand this. Some of you have dealt with it this week, but it's not just moms to deal with it. Dads deal with it too. Man, I, I should have I 
done better with my kids on this. I should have practiced with this. Uh, husbands feel this, man, I should have been a better husband. Wives, I, I need to be a better wife. I need to work harder. I need to try harder. I need to do more. See, you, you can never measure up. You, you, can, you can never be good. I've heard Matthew McConaughey, he, he was accepting an award several years ago, and they asked him who his hero was, and he said, my hero is me in 10 years. And then 10 years later, my hero is me in 10 years. My hero is me in 10 years. Because he's got to keep striving. Right? He's got to keep working. He's got to keep getting there. But Jesus offers us something so much better. He he offers us a way to be perfectly loved and perfectly accepted. He, He offers us a way to not have to bear our guilt and our shame because on the cross, Jesus bore that guilt and he bore that shame for us. And so if you've, never, if you've never tasted this, if you've never experienced this great grace that, that Jesus has given and that, that Jesus offers and Jesus provides, then we wanna invite you to do that today. We wanna invite you to, to come and to know and to experience the love and the grace that only Jesus can give. But maybe you'd say, Ethan, I, man, I've trusted in Christ. I'm following Jesus, but but maybe you've never taken that first step of obedience. Remember, maybe you've never been baptized. Maybe you've never followed Jesus in that. Jesus gave us the example. And so if we're following Jesus, then we're, we're following Jesus in baptism. We've got a, a, a slide we're gonna put on the screen. It's got a, a QR code that you can scan or you can go to gocentralchurch.org slash baptism. And maybe that's you. Maybe you need to be baptized. Uh, on May 7th, we're gonna have a baptism celebration. That, that evening, we are going to come back for our core rally, and we're going to celebrate all that the Lord has done in the life of Central over the last few months. You're going to get to hear from our student ministry and our kids ministry and for Central Florida and our groups ministry. You're going to get to hear about what the Lord is doing and where the Lord is leading us. And one of the ways that we're going to celebrate what he's done is we're going to celebrate baptism. We, we already have people who are signing up to be baptized on that May 7th evening. And so if, if you need to take that next step, why not now? Amen. Let me ask you that. Why not get baptized now? You might say, well, Ethan, you don't understand. It would just be people looking at me or whatever. Here's what I can promise you. Is it never gets easier than right now. It never gets easier. Obedience is always easiest immediately. And here's the thing about baptism. Baptism is not an option if you want more of Jesus. Baptism is an expectation for those who have followed Jesus. Right? Ba- baptism is what that first step that we have been called to take, to press in and to follow Jesus. And so if you need to be baptized, I, I hope that You'll go on there, you'll, you'll fill out that form. We'll follow up with you this week. Or maybe you say, Ethan, I, I'm the one. I need, to, I need to give my life to Jesus. I, I need to trust him. I'm tired of walking around with guilt and shame. Instead, I wanna, I wanna live with grace. I wanna walk with grace. We're gonna sing in just a minute. And as we sing, our Next Steps team, they, they'll be down front and they, they would love to talk with you and, and pray with you about what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it mean to, to trust Christ? Maybe you've got some more questions about bab- baptism, about being baptized. Man, they would love to talk with you about that. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing and I'm gonna invite you to come. Would you pray with me? 
Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for Jesus who changes everything. Lord, thank you that he has exchanged our guilt and shame for his grace. So Lord, I pray that we would know, that we would experience his grace today. Father, I pray that, that no one would leave today wondering where they stand with you, but they would leave today knowing where they stand. Father, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Central Church Podcast. For more information on how you can take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.